Hey, this is Brandon Ford with a quick heads up. The Blind Rage Podcast finally has an official Facebook page, so please don't forget to drop on by to like and subscribe. An unsuspecting boy comes home to murder. Suddenly, his life becomes a nightmare. Did you kill him? No! Was it the vicious act of a tormented stranger, or is it someone close to home? Caught in a web of bloody horror, he must find the truth or be the next victim. A chilling nightmare explodes in pure terror. See Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. Rated R. Starts Friday at a theater near you. This is Brandon Ford, and welcome to the Blind Rage Podcast. I'm very happy to announce that I have a new addition to the podcast. Mr. Jed Schaefer out of the Motor City is with me for the first time. Say hi, Jed. Hello, everyone. Glad to be here. I'm glad to have you. Thanks for taking part. And we are doing a commentary for the Susan Terrell cult classic Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. And before we get into that, I just want to get the plugs out of the way quickly. Please don't forget to check out my books and paperback Kindle in Kindle editions uh, by going to Amazon.com, typing in Brandon Ford. You'll also find my author page. Please click follow to get notifications whenever I have a new release. You can also find my audiobooks via audible.com by typing in Brandon Ford. You can also follow me on Instagram at writer Brandon Ford. And I am also on both Letterboxd and Twitter at Brandon Ford. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, critiques, suggestions, recommendations for movies you'd like me to do in the future, feel free to email me directly at blindragepod81 at gmail.com. Jed, do you have any social media you want to plug? Sure. Um, on Twitter, my handle is GPSG Podcast. Uh, and on Facebook, my podcast's webpage is uh, The Gamer Parents Strategy Guide. Sounds good. So, Jed is a podcaster as well. And uh, you've had two podcasts in the, in the past. Yes, I had a, a pro wrestling podcast about a decade ago, and I had a short-lived music podcast that lasted like a year, maybe, uh, and that was about three years ago. What kind of music did you uh, talk about? Uh, so the the concept was this. I have a friend who uh, he's about 10 years 15 years younger than me, actually, and he lives in England. So different generations, different countries, different music tastes. Mm -hmm. So the whole, the whole idea about it was every episode we would trade an album from each, from our, uh, our collections wow. and say, and say, try this out. So, you know, me being growing up, you know, eighties and nineties. So I was doing a lot of metal and a lot of grunge and alternative, uh, cause that was my wheelhouse. He was born in the late nineties. So, and like I said, he's from a different country. So he, he's, he's big into underground hip hop and, um, a lot of 
a lot of different uh, genres, uh, French synth wave and um, uh, post rock, like Godspeed, you black emperor, uh, weird. Uh, he likes really weird artistic genres. Uh, so yeah, we would just every week or every episode was different albums. That's really cool. Did you discover a lot of hidden gems? Yeah. Um, for the time that we were together, uh, I discovered quite a number of good bands. Uh, Godspeed You Black Emperor was probably the best one that I discovered, but he turned me on to um, uh, a couple of hip hop artists, uh, uh, two different rappers uh, who are definitely not at the Jay-Z level. They're far more underground, but they're really, really good. Um, one's named Billy Woods. The other one is named Ka, K-A. Um there's a, a 90s alternative band that I'd never heard of named Failure uh, that I that he recommended that just blew my mind. Um, and I turned him on to a few different bands uh, that really stuck with him. So, yeah, it was it, unfortunately it did come to an end because of creative differences. But uh, for the time that it happened, it was really fun. You said he introduced you to uh, some French synth. Yeah. Um, what was the name of the band? Uh, Carpenter Brute. Mm. Uh, yeah, uh, he, in he introduced me to that. Um, and if, if you're a video game fan, uh, you can find, I believe some of their music is featured in the Hotline Miami games. Um, it's like instrumental synth meets, I can't even describe French synth wave. It's so odd, but it's like very synth heavy, but very fast and and uh, very adrenaline filled. I thought you were going to tell me that he got you into Milan Farmer. She's like uh, the most successful French artist of all time. I can't say I'm familiar with her. Um, yeah, I listen. I listen to a lot of French music, mostly pop. Um, some some light rock uh but um you also have a podcast coming in 2022 that is more our center tell us about that yes yeah, so um i the, tentatively i'm calling it bloodstains uh yeah i'm not really sure about that title but i can't think of anything better and the idea of it is I'm going to do a true crime podcast, but I'm going to do it from the perspective of within a horror movie series. So I'm going to be looking at a horror movie series, for instance, uh, Child's Play and uh, or, you know, name any series could be anything. Maybe not Phantasm. That's a little difficult to keep up with, um, but I'm going to be looking at what happened in each movie as if these things really happened and I am a person doing a true crime podcast, investigating them, trying to answer unanswered questions. Look at, uh, you know, look at the crimes and the plot holes and the, and the survivors and the victims and tell their stories. And, um, you know, just everything that a true crime podcast does, but do it about horror movies. Mm. And you're going to have reenactments and such. Yeah, I'm going to um going to talk about, you know, how the crimes looked after the fact and what we think may have happened. Uh talk, you know, do quote unquote interviews with people uh whether they are 
experts, so to say, you know, doctors, psychiatrists, police, um, if I can, uh, you know, if I can incorporate sur- um, survivors into it or the family members of victims, talk about that and get their perspective, just as many different ways to examine the events of the movie without just going over the movie. Just so it's, it's kind of a different way to appreciate all these horror movies um, and, ju- and just put a different spin on them. So are you going to approach it from the perspective of someone who knows who the killer is or who doesn't know? Uh, well, it's going to be all of it's going to be after the fact. So we, we know who the killer is, but it's not necessarily that. Um, like, even if it's a supernatural thing, like, like I said, Chucky, for instance, um, you know, we will accept the fact that apparently reality is allowing a possessed killer doll to slaughter people, but we are going to, but the whole, but it's going to look at those events and go, okay, yeah, but, but wait a minute, but what about this? Uh, like a good example would be uh, Friday the 13th, the original. Mm-hmm. There's a part, there's a part in it where, a body gets thrown through a window and within 30 seconds, Mrs. Voorhees is on the scene. And a lot of people look at that and go, that's not possible because that Jeep was running. That Jeep pulls up. How did she throw the body through? And then go all the way back to her Jeep, drive it up without Alice seeing it. So maybe she had a co-conspirator. Maybe that co-conspirator was Jason. Maybe she didn't have a co-conspirator and Jason was killing people at the same time she was and she didn't even know it. So kind of taking that at that angle of it, of just looking at the events that we know and asking questions about it and exploring it in different ways. It sounds like you're going to do some really in-depth analyses. Yeah, it's it's taking a, a... a lot of repeat viewings, a lot of scouring of the internet for videos um, or articles about fan theories and other people's analysis of the movie. Just that way I can incorporate as many different questions and theories and ideas about the movie and or about, you know, whatever franchise I'm doing, uh, bringing it all together and just giving each movie an episode and just breaking it down. Are you going to use the movie scripts as part of your research? Probably not. Um, only because they're, that's not as why, I mean, okay. Yeah. With the internet now you can find movie scripts and you know, um, it's pretty easy now, but those aren't really quote unquote canon. Um, so I think I'm probably just going to stick to what you see in the movie. Like I'm not even doing deleted scenes or alternate endings or okay. anything. It's just going to be, it's just going to be what we've seen in the movies with the exception. I will say, um, I'm going to do a before episode for every one of them. Um, so the first episode is going to be whatever backstory that you can get. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to, I'm going to have to fill in some blanks there. I'm going to have to get a little bit creative, but uh, some, so like if it was Friday the 13th, 
the backstory of Pamela and Jason before his drowning in 1957 or for Nightmare on Elm Street, the backstory before he got set on fire by the, by the parents of Elm Street, stuff like that. And then the second episode will kick off movie number one. Mm -hmm. Well, that sounds really, really cool. I'm definitely looking forward to it. I wish you the best of luck. Thank you. And um, so it's tentatively titled Bloodstain? Bloodstains? Yeah. Bloodstains. Okay. So, um, yeah, I'm sure uh, I'll have you back um, when you get everything sorted to uh, to promote it when it's out and ready to go. Because, you know, I'm sure people will want to hear more details about it because it's definitely something that I think uh, – really hardcore horror fans will be interested in because the idea definitely sounds intriguing to me so thank you yeah it's it's definitely meant for the 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 people who really appreciate the film series and the movies um you know who just who know all the plot details mm -hmm. and it's just a way of a way of looking at them from a different angle and under a different light and just bringing the, all of the fan theories and all this stuff, all the outside information into one thing and talk about the movies, but in a, in a new way. Very cool. Very cool. Um, so yeah, I definitely want to have you back on, uh, to talk about that whenever you get it ready. Are you going to have a web website to coincide? Not yet. Um, I'm still quite a ways away. I'm still working on scripts for it. Uh, and then after scripts is voice acting. And because uh, I want to get uh, outside people to do, uh, many, you know, all the many different roles. Uh, so once I start, once I get further down the road towards the end of the scripts and everything, um, then it's going to be website and and uh you know pre-promotion stuff like that um but right now yeah it's it's still in the uh still in the writing phase yeah you're still in the infancy so, yep okay well and um even if i can't get you on uh right at the time that the uh the show premieres just give me the info and i'll i'll give you a plug myself all right sounds good um so, uh, we're uh, watching uh, Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker, which at the time of this recording is available on Shudder, which came as a surprise to me when Jed told me. Uh, so, if you want to watch along, that would be your best bet. Uh, it's also on YouTube, so you could watch it there as well. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're watching the um, one with the night warning title or with the butcher baker nightmare maker title because it's the same thing. But uh, do you have your movie queued up and ready to go? Yeah. Yes, sir. All right, because we are going to begin in three, two, one, play. Okay. Uh, the introduction to Susan Terrell right here um I was listening to the commentaries that are on the DVD 
and uh, doing a little bit of research about the movies, uh, watching some of the interviews. And I'd forgotten that the first choice for Susan's character, um, and Cheryl, uh, um, was Patty Duke. Really? Yeah. That uh, would have been interesting. It would have. Um, I don't know how well she would have fared with this kind of role because this was um this was a character that they wanted to be bigger than life and over the top and just full tilt crazy and i've never seen patty duke like that before so i on the surface i i would say yeah i can't imagine it but at the same time you think of movies like training day with denzel and he had been the good guy every you know built up you know for his entire career before that and then all of a sudden he's this psychotic lunatic in the movie i you never know him she may have been able to pull it off i like it when actors throw you for a curveball like that yes i do love when they play against type yeah unfortunately so many actors spend their careers uh playing the same character over and over again and it's a waste of their talents I think but um yes Susan really gave it her all in this one and uh you'd never heard of it before you saw it on Shutter yeah I had um I'd never seen this oh wait a minute Final, the writer of Final Destination 2 is taking notes right now (laughs) (laughs) um yeah, I'd never heard of this movie before, and all of a sudden, I, it popped up on on Shutter one day, and coincidentally, I had seen a YouTube video with a horror host, I can't remember who, and they mentioned it, and I went, okay, I'm gonna have to give this a shot, and I watched it, and it was I was blown away by it. It's this is a memorable movie. The shot when the car goes over the cliff it always reminds me of do you remember Toonses on Saturday Night Live <laughs> Toonses the driving cat yeah <laughs> could you just picture Toonses behind the wheel driving them off the cliff oh yeah Phil Hartman Phil in the backseat screaming yeah, screaming exactly um so yeah this was uh penned by a few different writers and one of them, uh, I believe it was Alan Rickman. Um, I can't find my notes. Um, but he uh, pulled a lot from his personal life because his mother was a bit of a manipulator. Well, actually, no. Well, she was, but... What the inception for the script was he is adopted and he got to a point in his life where he was wondering what his real parents were like and if they could have been homicidal. And so that was the the seed uh, that planted, he planted for the script. And um, 
like I said, he did pull from a lot of his own experiences with his mother. Um, one of them being the scene where she confronts uh, Billy about going to college and uh, she slaps him and, you know, she says college is for rich kids and people with brains you wouldn't fit in. And um, she slams the oven and she says, you upset me, even though she was the one who started the whole confrontation. And she said that he said that was what his mother would do on a regular basis. She would everything would be peaceful and fine. She would start something and then say, you upset me. I have to go lie down. Um, which is kind of sad, but, um, and he's also gay. So he pulled from his own experiences. I don't think he had any experiences or experienced any bigotry as is seen as strongly in this movie. Um, but he definitely came of age, you know, when it was not at all acceptable. This is so fucking weird. With her yeah. In his back. And the purring. That that yeah. purring is just unsettling for some reason. Yeah, and she does it later again. Five more minutes. Um but the uh, the um homosexual aspect to the script is there's homosexual overtones, but there are incestuous undertones. And they're definitely kind of cringy. Yeah, they're... So I, I've I've talked about this movie with a couple of friends, um, and uh, one of them who uh, she grew up with two gay parents, and, like... I know that she was really bothered by this movie because of its repeated use of a word that rhymes with bag <laughs> um, that, that I'm certainly not going to say because it's disgusting. But um, then I've seen other commentary about it and talked with other people about it where that's framed more as, okay, yes, but the homophobia in this movie is explicitly framed as bad, so it kind of... Yes fits in with their character so it's excusable so it's it, it's it's like I, as a straight guy i i can't i'm not gonna say you know i the i can't say there's a right or wrong anyway but as a straight guy it's like i don't have enough skin in the game or pers- i don't have the proper perspective to say that's not offensive is it cr- it's cringy for sure I I guess I side more with the I think because it fits the characters I don't hate it but it is still you hear it and you go ew yeah I mean I uh, we were talking about this uh, last night with Freddy versus Jason um, when Kelly Rowland used that word uh, to insult Freddy um, but that was completely out of place. This is a movie that is very complex and has multiple layers, and it's a it's about bigotry. It's about homophobia, um, and it has a very homophobic character who is a really bad guy. You're not supposed to side with him at all. 
And from what I hear, Bo Svensson didn't do a whole hell of a lot of acting. Um, because, uh, yeah, he had a lot of issues with people during the making of this movie. Um, but while it is unsettling to hear, there's Bill... Where's that Bill? Did I miss Bill Paxton? That was Bill Paxton, yeah. yeah. Um, while it's unsettling to hear, it's there for a reason. You know, it's not there just to be there. This is this is a story here that is centered around something nasty and negative, and it's definitely not glorifying it. Right. Like if they had used, if they had had him be homophobic, but use more. I don't want to say positive, but at least less caustic terms. I don't think it would you it would be as authentic, and I don't think you would get as much. I don't think you would feel his raw hatred and bigotry. I agree. I agree. See, there. As a gay man, to me, that word is as offensive as the N word. And there are other softer words that don't bother me as much, like homo and queer. That's fine. I like pufta, which is uh, Australian and uh, English. I just think it sounds funny. Um, so if you call me a pufta, that's fine. Uh, the F word, it's very, very jarring. And it's a very strong word. Um and it was used a lot in the 80s uh, in um in a, uh, as an insult between like kids like in movies like the monster squad and such um so in those instances i couldn't condone it but here like i said there's a reason so while i don't enjoy hearing it i understand why it's there and yeah i've gone back and watched movies where it's been in and used in that context like uh the one that sticks in my mind is bill and ted's excellent adventure where uh, yeah they're the scene where they're in medieval times and and bill thinks ted is dead but then he's alive and they hug each other and then they back off really quick and say it to each other and watching it in retrospect oh man it's just so painful to hear it's just so that's unne- um, it's tacky that's in uh bogus journey too oh yeah i i the robots when yeah. they say even though you're doing this to us we love you and then the robots mm-hmm. call them that and then push them off the cliff yep uh, I forgot about that. Um, so yeah, this is a scene that I was talking about with the um, with the confrontation. Yeah, she definitely, and it's not the. Uh, this is just one of many where one she many, goes yeah. from where she goes from zero to enraged over nothing whatsoever, and it's. I mean, it's well done, but. It's just, it's just, I kind of, I had a dad who had a tendency to blow up over things and this, this kind of 
I mean, he didn't have the incestuous overtones, but he this definitely rings true of there are people like this that just for no good reason go psycho on something stupid and small. Well, in the case of Cheryl, um, it looks, when you're an outsider looking at her, it looks like she's blowing up over nothing, but really her whole world is crumbling down because he's leaving her. Or he's right. telling her that he's toying with the notion of leaving her. And um, she, uh, Billy and uh, the pickled head of Chuck Strang in the basement are her entire world. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the walls are closing in on her. And uh, so she kind of blows up. Um, or something else I want to say about this scene. Um, yeah, I definitely think that she was the right choice for this for this kind of character because in uh, I've seen her a lot, um, as I'm sure you have as well, and she's definitely an actress who's capable of going from zero to sixty. Or she was. Unfortunately, she passed. Um, but, um... Oh, I know what I don't want to say. What's interesting, too, about, um... Jimmy McNichol playing Billy is... He was only 18 at the time of this. And Julia Duffy, who plays his girlfriend, was 30. And married. Really? Yeah. Huh. She doesn't look 30. No, I wouldn't have picked her at 30 at all. I would have pegged her at 18, 19, yeah. 20. Another, I got to say, too, about Julia Duffy, I had no idea that she was in this until, you know, until I watched it for the first time. And when I saw her name in the credits, I... I I had a brief moment of, oh, wow, I haven't seen her in a while. And then I flashed on the roles that I know her for, which are the ice cold uh, uh, role that she played in Newhart, the sitcom, um, the rather harried and, and kind of snippy mom in that that sitcom that was based on Look Who's Talking. Um, pretty much oh, everything I've her. ever... Yeah. So it was her in the first season, or no, the second season. I used to like that show. I loved because yeah. um, they changed moms at some point. I can't like they read like they did a reboot, and I can't remember if she was the original or the replacement. I loved um, uh, William Hickey in that. Is the repairman? Right, I'd forgotten about that. He was but, uh, so funny. But like every role I've ever seen her in, she either plays Ice Queen or Bitch. Like there's never I've never seen her in any role other than stuck up and and frosty and condescending and judgmental. And in this, she's so sweet and so nice. And it's like we were talking about playing against type. For me, at least, this was her playing against type. Because I'd never seen her in anything else, and it was it was refreshing to see it. She is the epitome of the all American girl next door, for sure. Oh yeah, definitely. Happy birthday! And um, what's interesting too about this is 
that it's it's supposed to be middle America, clearly, but this is all LA. It doesn't look like it. No, uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have known that this was LA. And um, that house uh, was a was a show. It was it was a, in a book of um, certain areas uh, in Los Angeles with uh, cul-de-sacs and just uh, unusual uh, settings in the Los Angeles area. Things that you wouldn't think that you would see. Um, and that's how they came upon the house, and uh, they, they rented it for I think a month or so, and repainted it, and they used a lot. It was a it's a big house, so they used a lot of the rooms as dressing rooms. So um, they definitely utilized their space for this house. I'm pretty sure her boob pops out <laughs> when Billy when Billy comes in. Um, she said she uh on the DVD she had never seen this before, and they were showing it to her for the first time, and she was saying that she remembered that. She's like, it just popped out. She didn't really care. Um. And she was saying that she wanted to be in the sex scene with Jimmy McNichol because she was only six years older than Julia Duffy. Why wasn't it me? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't even know what to say to that. Uh, I know. <laughs> well, weird. The, uh, the actress here playing Margie. I can't find my notes, so I'm just going to say Margie. But she went on uh, to play Mama... The, um, I believe it was the role that Queen Latifah played in Chicago, the movie version of Chicago with uh, Renee Zellweger. Um, oh, the, like, the, the woman in the... Um, Kind of like the big boss in prison. In the prison, yeah. She yeah. played she played that character on Broadway. Shortly after this. It's so unsettling here when she smears the blood on Margie's shirt. I, for, I don't know why, but the first time I saw it when she did that, my thought was... And maybe this is just because I'm a parent and I'm just, I, now I just, I see dirty clothes and stains and I think about it, but I looked at it and went, man, it's going to take a shitload of bleach to fix that. And now we have the two most unprofessional cops in the world. Well, we have, you gotta love Britt Leach. Um... He is uh, one of my favorite parts of Weird Science. It's Anthony Michael Hall's dad. Um, I, have, I haven't seen that in so long. I need to go back and revisit that. And from what I heard about, uh, Susan Thoreau in her interview, she 
And I heard mm. some voices. She didn't really. She didn't really say, but it was clear that she didn't like Bo Svensson. So I went in to help her. Um. But I did hear that he was handsy with some of the women, especially the costume designers. And yeah, it was not appreciated. I don't want to say that surprises me just because of the role, but it, I mean... Uh, he he really does embody this role very very yeah, well, and he's not <laughs> he's not doing a whole lot of acting. And so. given the time too, I mean, you know, eighty eighty one, whenever this was filmed, that happened a lot. Yeah, yeah. Clothing hasn't been. And plus, he's huge. He's like six six. And these two walk in. And Junior here holding the knife. I'd be scared. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that's a that's a tall tall human being. I mean, my one of my wife's uncles is 6'6 six, six, and another one is 6'9 and I mean I'm I stand 6 foot 1 and looking up at 6'6 six, six, it's only 5 inches but it feels like you're looking up at a skyscraper. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm 5'5 five, five on my best day so I look up at everybody. Um I don't think I better. But um, I did want to talk about a little bit briefly about the titles. Because um, this is, has a number of different titles. And um, when the script was originally written, it was called Mother's Dead. That was the original title. Um, and it is uh, represent. It's a representation of the line that Billy says after he kills her and realizes that she is his mother. Um, But then it went on to Scared to Death, Thrilled to Death, um, The Evil Protege. I don't even know what that means. Um, Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker is what they decided upon for the original theatrical release and then when when it was re-released they retitled it Night Warning which I nobody seems to know what that means that was just the distributor and they redid the artwork uh, and from what the from what I hear with the new Code Red Blu-ray you can reverse the sleeve to have the Nightmare Maker cover or the night warning whichever you prefer but i did see a long time ago a vhs from the uk that had totally different artwork and it was just a picture of susan terrell and she was all bloody and it was just called nightmare maker Um, but i heard that it was also called that was where it was also called the evil protege and this was a video nasty really Mm -hmm. i i would not have thought this would be a video nasty like like the reception of video or not the reception the reputation of the movies that were classified as video nasties 
helmet. Yeah, you got like I just, I just, Holocaust and Maniac. Yeah, this I mean, violent films. Yeah, no, other than the scene where she stabs the cable repairman, um, I mean, really, that's the the goriest scene in the movie. It's that that and the, that and the head be the 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 log going into the head in the car accident, but yeah. I mean, that's that's about it. The the violence is minimal and it's sparsely placed throughout the film. I refuse to answer any more of your questions. And um Lady, I don't give a shit what you do. Lieutenant, I'm leaving now. Another thing that I well mm, first I want it's okay. There's a novelization of this that very well could have been the actual novel that the screenplay was based on because it goes so much deeper into the Cheryl character and I believe it talks about it was so long ago since I read it but it talks about how she gets pregnant with Billy I believe she got um, pregnant uh, he was a uh, prom baby and then Chuck was going to leave her, and she killed him. And her sister and her husband were older and more responsible, so they adopted him. Um, but it definitely goes a lot more in-depth. Uh, and his friendship is not with the gym teacher. His friendship is with... It's English teacher. And I think he's the one who has the Lander's name. And the coach's name is Nelson. Uh, and what always bugged me about that book and about the movie is Britt Leach's character is a... A sergeant, and Bo Svensson is a detective, and Bo is seen as ranking higher, and he's telling him a sergeant what to do. I'm pretty sure that's not right. Yeah, I'm. I'm pretty sure that's not right. I, you know, and I didn't even pick that up at first. I just, I kind of took it as presented. But now that you mention it. That doesn't make any sense. I yeah. maybe maybe it's just because um, Carlson is so much more of a force of nature. I mean, later on, there's a scene where he's whipping out a gun and intimidating a witness in his yeah. office. Uh, I mean, any guy who's that much of a loose cannon at work, I'm probably going to shut up and just do as he says because he's scaring the living hell out of me. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he was intimidating um, a Mexican immigrant, and he he wouldn't even let him sit in a chair. He made him sit on the floor. So I think that was also to show um, how nasty his character really is, that he's not only bigoted against gays, but he's also bigoted against minorities. So he's a really loathsome character. As a whole, and you're really not supposed to feel anything at all for this guy. 
Yeah, no, and they, and between the writing of it and his performance of it, it's a great job of making him, even though he's right about the fact that there, that there is a cover up, and even though he's wrong about what they're covering up, um, they they still do not justify anything that he does or anything that he says. No. He is one hundred percent an abominable human being. On and off the set, but um, this will make you happy to hear because he did get his comeuppance, and I don't know, I don't know if this was on purpose or not. I would like to think that it was, but toward the end of the movie, when he gets he gets shot, he gets squibbed, mm-hmm. and his, the squibs were put on backwards. So they exploded against his chest as opposed to out. And when he's screaming, that's real. He was in a lot of pain and had to go to the emergency room. Oh, that sounds so painful. I mean, take Billy. I hope so. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Asshole deserves it. I just wow! I wonder if the props master did that on purpose. Yeah. Well, I, he he pissed a lot of people off on, while making this movie, so I, it wouldn't have surprised me if it was on purpose. And it's a perfect type of thing to be like, no, it's a total accident. I didn't mean to put them on backwards. Why would I do that? I mean, you're never going to prove that that. The prop master did it intentionally, so it's it's perfectly it's plausible deniability. Yeah. I like I like how this movie. Uh, so I mean, we've talked about Carlson and how reprehensibly he's portrayed. I also like the other side of it in that. They, you know, it could have been so easy for them to go gay equals pervert, gay equals uh, child molester, and they don't. This coach is presented as, this character is presented as a coach, and he is gay, and it's not, and one does not influence the other. One does not, you know, being gay doesn't make him a bad person. He's just a coach that is gay, and when he loses his job, they... They don't explicitly say it, but you know that he's being railroaded out of it because of what Carlson does. And they make it, they make that sympathetic. Mm-hmm. And that's, that. I mean, 1981, that's really friggin' progressive for 1981. Definitely. And they say during the commentary that this is considered to be the first horror film to ever have a sympathetic gay character. I believe it. Yeah. Because of it, it's it's uh it's popular with the gay community. Yeah, I, I believe it. This and uh I'd I'd imagine that this and Nightmare Two are probably the the two big towering um examples. Yeah. Well there there is a belief that Nightmare Two borrowed a bit from this. Uh, I can see that. Yeah, to a degree, a little bit. I had to do the one. Um, I did only one. Cause, uh, 
Hey, Jimmy McNichols' character is kind of the... He kind of is the scream queen in this one, the final girl, so to speak. Yeah, they really do invert. Um, I mean, which again is 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 ahead of its time for 1981 because the slasher genre was really just picking up steam. But the fact that he is more the final girl and Julia Duffy's character is more of the supportive boyfriend. It's. It's a clever inversion of the trope without having to be, you know, cabin in the woods kind of, hey, look at what we're doing. We're, yeah, we're, we're winking. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I really don't think that this, at the time, it got some good reviews, but they were more mixed. And it didn't really get, um, the appreciation for the its intelligence until decades later. What the hell are you doing in here? Um, because a lot of it just a lot of people just saw it as just another slasher movie because theaters were inundated with them at this time. Right, and the title doesn't help. I mean, no. none of the titles would have been any better. Night Warning sounds like a Skinamax movie, but uh, Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker sounds like a B-tier April Fool's Day, graduation day, final exam kind of that level of slasher. You were always in Lander's office. I always thought you guys were, you know. Jimmy McNichol has a commentary, and uh, he kind of sounds like he's been through a lot. And um, it was interesting because, like I said, I was revisiting some of the the interviews on the disc, and. I first heard about, or Code Red first announced that they were putting this out in, um, I believe, 2010. And they have an interview with uh, Steve Easton, who plays uh, the coach, and he says it's 2008 during his interview. And Jimmy McNichol says it's 2009 during his interview. And it didn't come out until 2014. Um, from what I hear, during the on-screen interview with Jimmy you that he's a he was Tell me, very very no. intoxicated I'm gonna ask you and you can't really tell um, you because he's somewhat coherent but this was a I know someone who knows someone who was on the set situation and saw him staggering around and he was kind of being difficult and didn't look like he knew 
where he was, and I think that a lot of what um, halted the production of the DVD was they couldn't get him to come back to Los Angeles to record a commentary track because he lives in Colorado now or at least he did at the time of the commentary but um he works in carpentry and real estate and he also claims that he's still doing music but I would be willing to bet that he's doing music for himself um but it, yeah, it took them a long time to get him to record this commentary. And uh, when you listen to it, it's really not even that interesting. I would have been fine if they just had, because there's the other commentary is with the screenwriter. So I would have been fine with just that one. Um, just for the, st uh, for nostalgic sake. I wasn't a child of the 70s, so I didn't know that he was like a uh, a teen heartthrob or pop star or anything like that. So I had to look at some of his uh, videos and very, very cheesy disco pop him and his sister, Christy, who I'd always known from um, Empty Nest. But... um. She was also in, she was in uh, some movies too. Um, I can't remember what that movie she was primarily known for, but it came out around this time. It was something. It was like a coming of age comedy at a camp. I'm looking at her Wikipedia and um, yeah, I'm not entirely sure. Little darlings, maybe. Little darlings. Yep, that was it. Did you know that Coach Landers was a homosexual? No. Billy? And no. they put this in... Do you know that homosexuals are very... Ironically? Do you know that? <laughs> Her saying sick. about homosexuals being very sick and she ends up killing six people. Right. <laughs> and, is, and has some pickled hey, in the basement. Um, you say hello? Don't you mean goodbye? What is the phrase? Yet he not cast the first stone. Whatever it is. Um. But yeah. Carlson came over And it's a I, just a, a shout out to her for that subtle, like in that sentence where she's talking about them sick. Every word is a slight increase in volume. It's it's little moments like that that are just that just make her performance so great like she could have just screamed the whole thing but she just over the course of one sentence she just slowly goes from a one to a ten and and the director uh he let her do a lot of what she wanted you know he said that he wanted the the part to be big and he just, you know, uncaged her basically. And she, it's big. I mean, she she just chews. I mean, there there's almost teeth marks on the set. It's she's chewing scenery. Yeah. But in a but in a great way. Like not in a hammy way. She is just yeah. she's just owning that that role. Yeah. And I think she's a little crazy. She was a little crazy too. So. 
in real life. Um, it 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 took so long too for the DVD to come out that she passed away during um in the interim. Which is a shame because if there is anyone in the movie that I would want to hear, uh, want to hear from, hear their experience, she would be the one. Well, she she does have an interview, but she really didn't remember making the movie, and she'd never seen it. Um, and she just spent a lot of time cracking wise. Because they were showing her the video, I guess, on a laptop. And it was her reaction to it. Um, oh, that's nice. Um, but yeah, she didn't remember it. She'd never seen it. And um, she just remembered that, uh, yeah, she wanted to have a love scene with Jimmy McNichol. Instead of Julia Duffy. More police professionalism. Keeping your police dog in the office. Well, I mean, it's been pretty rough, but you gotta work it out on my own. Like they go, they go the extra mile in making sure that painting Carlson as a guy who is fundamentally loathsome, incredibly bigoted, and no dis, no respect whatsoever for police procedure. Like he is not only is he a horrible person, he's a horrible cop. Yeah, but I don't think having a dog really <laughs> makes him all that bad a guy. No, it's no, it's not a bad. It's just so much. I think it's probably one of the only positive things about him is that he's he's kind to animals. No, it's not that it's bad. It's more just that. That's not what a police, you know, you don't keep the police dog in the detective's office is all. Mm. And he's just like, yeah, no, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna take the dog where I want. This, this scene here, um, where you see uh, Julie's house and the white picket fences and stuff. This is another, um, area, um, that just looks total middle America and not LA at all. Um, so yeah, I was, I was really very surprised when, um, I learned that it was shot there. Where were these sets when they filmed the nightmare on Elm street? Right. Or Halloween or Halloween. Exactly. Like, yeah, Haddonfield, Illinois, with all those palm trees down the main road. A man got killed. Supposedly by a woman who's claiming attempted rape. The man was a homosexual and an acquaintance of Billy. He actually used the word homosexual. I have a responsibility to find out whether That's the kindest thing he's done all movie. And whether or not he's a homosexual. Oh, he used it again. That's ridiculous. At least he's not throwing the F-bomb around. Well, maybe right. because he's in the company of a lady. I'm not going to answer that. Julie. I like, too, how she stands up to him. Like, she is not taking any of his garbage. No. That's... You wouldn't expect that from a teenage girl, but it's nice to see. Yeah. Especially with a dick like him.
I wish I could remember more about uh, what's in the novelization. But um, yeah, if you're if you're a fan of the movie, it's 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 like going deeper into um, um, the, the the complexities of the of the story and what makes Cheryl tick essentially. Um, because there's there's flashbacks of, of her okay. when she's younger, uh, in high school and stuff. I gotta imagine the book is pretty hard to find though. Like, um, I know the Friday the Thirteenth novelizations are. Yeah. yeah. The um, a lot of novelizations for those movies and um. The movie tie-in books. Uh, there's a YouTube channel called the '80s Slasher Librarian, and it's just this guy who reads them, basically. Not the best quality, and he's not—he's definitely not a professional audiobook narrator. But. Being that these books are all incredibly hard to find and incredibly expensive, if you want to experience them, they're worth it's worth having a look at. Came by my house and he asked me some questions. Now I'm kind of curious to find out how much novelization of this would be. And he asked me when I got it, I got it on eBay for sixteen bucks, and it was brand new. Did you tell him? That it was none of his business. Good. I hope I still have it somewhere. How come we have it more often? Billy, is there something... I looked it up and I'm all I'm finding are DVDs and Blu-rays. Oh. I even put up? novel. Did you oh, look wait. on Amazon? I did not look on Amazon. I thought I'd go to eBay first because I thought that might be a more realistic place to find it. You're really sexy. Eh, homework for another day. Another surprise, Julia Duffy boobage. Yeah, I did not see that coming the first time I saw it. I was like, whoa, I just saw Julia Duffy's boobs. That's really weird. We're not going to tell the missus about that. Oh, she's... Hmm. <laughs> she sat through all the Friday the 13th with me and there's plenty of you know and just about every other horror movie I've made her suffer through so she she's used to boobs I will say it does feel a little gratuitous in this like yeah like I get the the sex scene in this is very necessary because it establishes that they are sexually active which kind of plays into whether the Billy is gay or not. Yeah, it remains angle. that question mark. Yeah. So it and it also gives reason for Cheryl to be for her possessiveness to go even higher of Billy because he's sexually active with another woman. But the boob shot was it 
it feel that's like one of the few moments where this movie feels like a cheap slasher movie as opposed to being what it is because it didn't need that. Well, I think that was something that the producers wanted. They wanted um, some skin, um, both male and female, and especially um, they wanted all of the shots of Jimmy Nichol like this one here right um because they wanted to appeal to uh, his his uh his team fan base right and i get it's a marketing decision i get it it's i mean it, horror movies horror movies equal skin in the 80s so it's not unheard of it just in the, this movie seems a little bit a step above just your standard slasher so it just seemed kind of odd yeah, yeah, because it's more of a a mystery thriller than it is a horror or slasher film. Yeah, it's really only in the last fifteen minutes where the body count starts to rack up. Yeah. So yeah, for you know seventy five of its ninety minute runtime, it's like you said, it's a mystery thriller. It it just it it it's only in that last fifteen minutes that it shifts style and it just yeah. not that the shifting is a bad thing the ending makes perfect sense and it's and it's high octane it's like the most high octane segment of the movie there is talk too in the uh, commentary about um, removing well I think they they made a cut of the movie uh, not showing um, Cheryl looking at um, the parents leaving kind of like ominously because that that look that she gives him and the the freeze frame on it really sets sets her up sets up her character rather um, and lets the audience know that she's up to something and they were toying with the idea of making it more of a mystery as far as if she is or isn't capable of anything murderous or nefarious and it didn't it didn't work it only worked with the audience knowing right away but the audience may know right away but they still don't know even though she's done some pretty horrible things they still don't know how what exactly she's capable of until the the end Right. Which is completely unhinged. So it's all a buildup of that, for sure. And I was reading on Wikipedia that apparently the milk thing with her poisoning his milk that was a conscious decision to show um you know her maternal side to him a mother giving her son milk right and i never really thought about it before but i know that i just thought that um 
they use milk because it's um supposedly if you're poisoning someone it um it hides the uh the taste of whatever substance you put in it um better than most other see you later bye other drinks i didn't know that I like the fact that at least this one time, because they kind of go back on it a little bit later, but this one time, the sedative that she gives him is slow acting. Mm -hmm. You you so often see in movies that someone ingests a sedative and they're falling asleep in 30 seconds. It's like, no, Valium doesn't work like that. It takes a little time for you to go nappy nap. Yeah, and that's and that's what happens later too when um when she when she cuts her hair, um and then Margie comes over and she gives it to him again because he's up and walking around, and he collapses right away. That time. Yeah, yeah, it's a little inconsistent, but mm-hmm. it's so this this also in- interestingly too has a bit of a um. Um, Munchausen by proxy element to it, you know? Because she's making him think that he's sick so that she, so that he can stay and that she can take care of him. Yeah. I didn't think about that. Because I, the, when I, I watched this again uh, just recently to take notes on it, and um, one of the things that I thought about was, was that her plot, her her plan to keep him home and to eliminate everyone that stands between them, it makes no sense. But it makes no sense because she's off her friggin' rocker. Mm-hmm. So it's fine that it makes no sense. But I mean, her plot is, I'm gonna poison him and I'm gonna knock him out. Like, okay, well, how long can you do that, lady? <laughs> but but giving it a Munchausen by proxy spin actually makes it more logical in a weird way yeah and with her setting up the the attic with all the baby toys and stuff yeah that's weird that is a weird flex like i'm gonna set up a new bedroom for you and there's gonna be rainbow peacock feathers and there's going to be raggedy and dolls and hula hoops like why didn't you just why didn't you just take the stuff that was in his room and move it? Well, she's she, crazy. She's because she's she, nuts. Well, she also doesn't want him to grow up because if he grows up, he's going to leave. Right. So she wants to keep him a little boy. Even if he's not. So he's not, but she's going to make him. And it just it reinforces her kind of uh, her dissonance with reality because she knows that even she knows that he's not a little child anymore. He she watched him have sex through the window with his girlfriend, so she knows it. But she's still kind of disassociating herself from it and trying to force him back into this de-aged hole, if you will. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's a good point with the timing of it. Um, 
because I think she realizes now because he's having sex that she really needs to um, put things in high gear and uh, really set things into action with keeping him home where she feels he belongs. Yeah. I, I never noticed there's a play school baby toy, one of those ring stacking things over yeah. his shoulder. Everybody had those things. Yeah. I know I had one when I was 17. <laughs> Crayolas. Yeah, that is that that is a heck of a room he made him there, Mom. I didn't realize that she says, um, do you like the same way when she cuts her hair? Where do you think you're going, young man? I never oh. noticed that. I never noticed that either. And I think because the scene, the haircutting scene is coming up soon, but I... I, I want to mention it now because she's still got the full head of hair that the difference in her appearance when she has a full head of hair versus when she has the shorter head of hair like she somehow she looks older when she has the shorter hair and here she I mean she still looks crazy but she looks still sweeter and somehow more like a June Cleaver every mom and then she cuts her hair and suddenly she looks concerning <laughs> I'm not sure what that was with the charm bracelet um, yeah I, I didn't I didn't get that I didn't get that part either I like I said, I just, I watched this literally, what was it, uh, yesterday, and I still, I watched the, I saw that part and went, what? What was that? Especially if it was um, her sister who was wearing the bracelet. Why, why would she want him to wear it? You would think that she would want him to have uh, erased her. From her, from his mind, right, completely. So I, one of the things I will say, I think one of this movie's weaknesses is that Billy, he he pushes back against her her overprotectiveness, but he's never suspicious of her, which I find very hard to believe because she is she's Looney Tunes from get-go but when he starts to get suspicious he decides to go into her room and snoop through her stuff like you know you're pulling on a dog's tail right this is not this is not you know that like look what she did in the kitchen when she was making your birthday dinner look how nuts she went at that at that sit-down dinner and uh, uh, you know about homosexuals are sick she goes from zero to explosion so quick. What did you think was going to happen if she caught you doing this? Uh... 
Oh. What do you think you're doing? Nothing. I'm just looking. You're blind! You're going through my <laughs> That was a real great attempt to cover up what you were doing, man. I'm just looking. <laughs> that's such a that's such a teenage move of you didn't see what you think you see. I always thought that was funny, though, that she said, that's very rude. That <laughs> he was going through her shit. That's rude. Don't do that. It's rude. Aunt Cheryl, there's something wrong. You're lying to me. Why would I ever want to lie to you? Ugh. Cringe right there at that moment. Yeah, that... His skin should not just be crawling, it should be running a marathon. Is he, is he holding that underneath his chin? Oh, okay. By, by, every time I see that, I think that he's holding it under his chin until it kind of comes back into, until he tilts it forward. But I'm like, why would you hold it that way? More I find out about that woman, the stranger she gets. She dated a guy in high school named Chuck Strang, an older guy, not a local. One day he just disappeared, left his clothes and everything. Hasn't been heard of since. You look tired, Cook. You need some rest. Come on home. I love... I don't even mind if you go on vacation. I don't mind if you go on vacation. I love how he... Just to make him even more evil, he they just make sure he's pursuing an agenda. He's not even been... He's not interested in investigation. He is in, he's interested in his own agenda. Yeah. Because he can't be wrong. He can't accept that. The, yep. He the, the 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 possibility is non-existent to him. He can't. He it's just there's no way he can't be wrong. And, and even now, when yeah. you toward the end of the movie, um, when Julie is saying look in the basement because Sergeant Cook's body is down there, he want he won't accept that. Yeah, just he is he is so willing to negate reality just because he's he's got his idea and he's going to he's going to make the evidence fit no matter what. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's going to shove that square peg into the round hole until it's stuck. And now we're at the the haircut. It's like that marks the third act as far as I'm concerned. Like the minute she gets the haircut, she is just a different human being. And even her acting, like she, her physical presence changes and she kind of hunches over more. And she's got this kind of like, it, it kind of reminds me of the, uh, the way that the Raptors move in Jurassic <laughs> park. <laughs> Like just the way that her body moves, she it's a the her she takes on just this different physical acting style that it's so disturbing and so un it's so inhuman, but it's it's great to watch. Well, that might have helped her her character when she, she took the wig off. Yeah, that's what it feels like. Like the haircut feels like 
it's her taking the lid off. It's just, all right, it's time to stop pretending. It's time to just go. Let's just embrace the psycho. Yeah. And there are certain things like that I think can improve a performance with an actor. Um, like I was doing a commentary for The Crush. Um, and I always saw the sunglasses that Alicia Silverstone's character wears in the movie as uh, that helped her her develop her character um, and I think her her portrayal would have been very different without them and I can't imagine this third act with Cheryl having the hair that she had for the majority of the movie yeah no she would look too motherly and at the end and, and at this point she can't look motherly anymore she has to look just nuts yeah i love this plan too by the by billy and julie yeah let's send in the girl who my aunt hates to distract her. The, the, no bad could possibly come from this. Well, I admire Julie's balls. <laughs> that is true. She's not afraid to um, stand up to uh, Bo's character, and she's not even afraid to stand up to Cheryl. So, Even though Cheryl at this point is sending like a million warning signs. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She's screaming, she's she's going like completely nuts on that meat tenderizing. Then yeah. she breaks down then she breaks down crying and now she's gonna hug her and it, uh, yeah. Uh, you should be running, girl. <laughs> yeah. But God, God bless you for committing to the bit and trying to help Billy on this one. She should have a huge neon sign overhead that says schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. Right about now. First time I saw this, I totally bit on that, and I went, wow, they really killed Julie. Yeah. And she's gone for a good, um, a good chunk of the movie, too. So you do kind of think that she is dead. A lot of um, Susan's performances uh, here, hereafter in this third act, um, I think are heavily uh, 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 she she uses her like you said her her posture and her her movement, but a lot of it is in her face, in the expressions that she makes um and one of my favorite moments <laughs> is when margie won't leave and when she finally does she um susan just lifts her head and has this look on her face like are you serious right now um saying that she closed the windows and 
And Margie's another one too who ignored the the signals. Um, when uh, it starts to rain, and Margie says, "You mind if I call Frank?" And um, Cheryl says, "There's an umbrella in the broom closet. You better use it." And then she stops and looks at her and says, "And go, Margie." Margie should have gone. Right. Margie didn't go. <laughs> I like that no one saw the blood. I mean, it's possible, you know, you just, you're so used to seeing your refrigerator, you don't notice the inside, but, I mean, that was a lot of blood. Mm. Yeah. Instant sedative. What I like too, I remember about the novelization was the the dialogue is taken straight from the movie, and there were certain lines and moments that I was positive that Susan improvised, or she I guess she she still could have, but um yeah it's it's line for line, all the dialogue from what I remember. That scene, too, where they had their heads next to each other is a great contrast of uh, Margie has a more concerned motherly look. And I can't even describe Cheryl's <laughs> expression. It's just it's not really caring. It It's not motherly. It's just she's kind of looking down on him like, is he going to wake up? Did I? Did I make him go into a coma? Mm -hmm. uh, everything better turn out okay. It's just there's just no caring in her at this point. Like not, not at least not in a version of caring that we would call caring. Yeah. No. <sighs> <laughs> Tear, tearful confession oh phone is ringing <laughs> and I love the attitude that she gets to, to Julie's mother Right, like it's not. It, again, it's just more of her unhinged. I think this is normal, and everything else is wrong. Like she is so divorced from reality and how normal people converse at this point. Do you always listen on other people's phone conversations? I wasn't listening. I was. What are you doing here? 
I closed your windows. Looks like it's going to rain. They originally wanted um, Bill Paxton go, to play Billy, but um, their producers wanted a name, and he really wasn't anybody at the time. Yeah, like I, I didn't even know that he was acting at this point. I thought his first role was that really tiny bit part at the beginning of the Terminator. Would you hold, please? Just one second. Julie Linden's mother. I don't want to talk to her. I already told her you were here. Oh, thanks. What year was that? Eighty-four. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was eighty-four. But yeah, they said he gave a really good reading, and they liked him a lot, and they really wanted him for Billy, but um, yeah, they needed someone with some kind of cachet. Um, I think Miss Roberts is kind of peculiar myself. They said Daryl Hannah read for Julie, and I've heard that about about Daryl Hannah so many times, that she read for this role and she read for that role. Um it's amazing that she ever got any jobs. I don't think she would have been the right fit. No. I think they were saying that um, because she was too tall and they liked um, um, Julia Duffy because she was petite and she had that all-American girl look. And... I think Daryl Hannah's looks are, are more exotic. Yeah, she's, I would say she's unconventionally attractive. She's definitely not the girl next door, no. all American type. I didn't this part, notice this part here. She had the little look on her face. I was like, are you serious? You're still not gone? <laughs> I didn't notice it the first time that I watched it, but the second time I did, that tune she keeps humming, I I picked up on it and was like, is she singing to the tune of Jesus Christ Superstar? Oh, I didn't know that. She's like, come with me, come lie down. Jesus Christ, superstar. Okay. Yeah, like, it it may not be the whole song. It may just be that intro set of bars, but once I heard it, I couldn't stop hearing it. Wow. I didn't pick up on that. But I'm not a big musical person, so... I'm only a music... I, I only have exposure to them because my wife is a big musical person. So... I just I've heard that song enough driving in the car and she's playing musical soundtracks that I've you know some of it is embedded in my brain. Why does she hate you? <laughs> you know it's funny. Um she took me to see Chicago the the movie adaptation. Uh she was like it's dark, it's it's edgy, it's about murder. I think you'll love it. And I walked out and I went that was one of the worst movies I've ever mm. seen and you, and you are going to suffer when you pay me back. And she she's not a big horror fan. A year later she paid me back by going to see Freddy versus Jason. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And she and she just walked out and went, okay, so from now on, we're just going to agree on a movie, right? 
Yeah, I took an intro to theater class in college, and we watched that um, in class, and uh, it was not good. No, it. Oof. I've watched it once. I will. Uh, there, there's some movies that, that no matter. It's like, yeah, sorry, you. I know you love it, hun, but I'm not sitting through that again. I will find something else to do. I dated somebody who was a musical theater major in college, and he, of course, liked musicals, and he made me sit through Moulin Rouge and Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Oh, God, and, that one. Uh, I had a buddy who took me to Hedwig and the Angry Inch, the movie, and he was one of those, like... I refuse to watch mainstream movies. I'm counterculture just to be contrary types. Mm-hmm. And so he took me to that and I walked out. I'm like, what the hell is wrong with you? Mm-hmm. Why would you think I would want to watch this? Yeah, that was not good. There she's doing the um, cat noises again. Which I don't get why. Like what? I don't what? know. Like what was the end game of the purring? Because it's weird. I think that's <laughs> that's it. Because it's weird. One of my favorite moments is when. Um, they're, uh, 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 Cheryl and, and Julie are, are fighting in that swamp <laughs> and she just keeps screaming but the way her scream gets cut off is like ah! Ah! every time she goes under the water right and that they built that um, that was basically like a um, a pool like an above ground like three foot pool basically that they just kind of dressed up to make it look like a swamp. Cut right through the arm like it's made of butter. (laughs) Yeah, I think that... That moment and um, the stabbing in the beginning, those are probably the two goriest moments. Yeah. And the in the beginning, the stabbing is really only gory because it's so bloody. Right. It's that it's not it's not a flashy slasher kill. It's just messy. Yeah. Just man, those body movements. It, she, she's just so erratic and, and bizarre with the way her body moves. It's so awesome. But I just, I can't get enough of the wild movements that she has. She's for sure unhinged. It makes me wonder how much of it is acting and how much of it is her. Yeah, like, where did you have to go in your mind to, to, uh, if it's all acting, where did you go to find this, this side 
of the role to, to you know, how did you come about it? And the fact that she never saw it or remembered anything about it too is interesting. She just did it and then basically never gave it a second thought. Which I always find interesting when actors do that, when they just when they just appear in a movie and disregard it. Like I, I just saw recently um a bit about uh the Jaws movies and Michael Caine had the same uh, the same approach towards his appearance in Jaws the Revenge of yeah I, I had two weeks and it bought me it allowed me to buy my mother a house and I've never watched the finished product and I don't give a damn to to watch it yeah um A lot. What a lot of people don't realize, though, is that um, for most actors, movies are just a job, and I think very few actors actually watch their own movies. And a lot of the time, if you go up to an actor and you recite a line or your favorite line from one of their movies, they're not going to know what the hell you're talking about. This is something right. that they memorized and committed to celluloid 25 years ago and never thought about again. Right, and they've done, you know, a dozen movies in the interim. Yeah, and, exactly. There yeah. Been, there's been so many movies before that and so many after. Especially, you know, when you're going to, um, like, to horror conventions and you're saying lines soup like a Linnea Quigley or a Debbie Rashan who've both been in like 200 movies. And I have to imagine too, it's weird to watch yourself on screen, especially depending on the role, like something like this, where you hope that it is completely far gone from what, you know, the actress really is. Um, it's got to be weird to see your, the look up on screen and see you acting like this incestuous, homicidal, schizophrenic. Uh, I wouldn't want. Yeah, I'm not sure I that I. Wanna, no. Uh, one of the writers. Um, on the commentary, said like six months before they recorded, he saw the actress uh, who played Margie on the street in New York, and she'd never seen the movie either. This is another thing, you know, that she did and forgot about. Right. And I wonder again how much that plays it, uh, how much the the movies when it released and the genre in which it kind of got mixed up in I wonder if that plays any role too because like you know you can go up you, Kevin Bacon and Grisman Glover have talked about their experiences in Friday the 13th but they're not like they're not as much gung-ho about it as say Heather Langenkamp is about Elm Street it's just you know they go yeah it was a job I did it I was young I needed to buy a Volvo <laughs> yeah well, 
Crispin Glover I can kind of understand because his his uh, performance is ridiculed so much, especially primarily he's known for that ridiculous dance. Um, Kevin Bacon, you know, I I think that he probably sees it as something that he did early in his career when he was less seasoned and he's in, that's why he's probably not so fond of it but i i think that he definitely recognizes how lucky he is to have been in such a cult film or a film that has had such mass appeal global appeal right you know but no it, it was more just me saying though that it's easier to kind of leave these off your mental resume just because of the time and the reputation that they have. And, you know, it's, it's not, especially when you have a, a nice career, like Susan Tyrell had a, had a big Broadway career. It's, it's a lot easier to just kind of go. And that it's, it's kind of easier to, to block this off. What does he stab her with? The po- was it the poker? The yeah. Poker? Yeah. And she does that. <laughs> Those faces. Wow. Those are. Those are something. I do like how it, the final fight is really not... It's not long and drawn out where two people are taking wounds that would normally... You know, that would drop a regular human being, but they're somehow just sponges for punishment. You know, like... they It's two short scraps. They both get the living shit kicked out of them. And, I mean, she dies, obviously, but they're both worse for wear very quickly. Yeah. It's it's a lot more realistic than five minutes of cat and mouse and beating each other uh, what should be half to death but isn't. Well, then uh, the swamp scene with Susan and, and Julia was longer than that. That was very uncomfortable for them. Um, they were not happy, either of them. That doesn't hold, and they were wet, and they had to do take after take after take after take. I gotta imagine that's exhausting too, because both of them go underwater for a period of time. Yeah, and that's holding your breath, and that's that's gotta be tiring. Mm-hmm. Well, you really did it, Billy. Hey, Lieutenant. Oh God. Julie. Which of you two assholes killed Cookie? No! <laughs> it sounds like he says assholes. It did, yeah. Get on the radio and get her some medical attention. Right away. Shouldn't I check the basement? She saw Miss Roberts kill Cook. Carlson, the girl says... I don't care what she says. I don't get care on. what she says. Yeah, see? Because he can't be wrong. Right. And he's gonna have Julie committed. Son of a bitch. 
and beat up one person and then point the gun at the person who's laying on the floor bleeding like we, we know that, that what's-her-name's plan was off the rails, but what was his plan here? Like, this is just... How are you going to cover this up? Another nice note about how much of an asshole he is. He's not trying to be polite about, you know, he's not trying to talk Billy down. He's arrogant about it. Yeah. You're not going to shoot anybody. Yeah. You can, you can kind of see, um, the, the flub in the, uh, in the, uh, what do you call it? Um, and the squibs because the look on his face he looks freaked yeah he does and the way he spun around it looked it didn't look like that was the way it was supposed to go for sure yeah because like when I first saw it and even when I watched it again this week to take notes I just assumed that that was supposed to be that he was selling that this gun was really super powerful, <laughs> but no, but, but you look at the gun, it's like, that's not, I mean, it's a, it's a gun. It's not like a hand cannon. It's not, you know, it's not a 45 Magnum. It's just a, a, a standard police revolver. So yeah, knowing that the, now that the squibs were reversed, that makes a hell of a lot more sense while he spun around like a top. And the scream. You never hear anybody scream when they get shot like that in movies. Yeah. I always thought this little epilogue here was a little cornball, but I guess, you know, you gotta um, establish what happened to him after the fact that he wasn't charged uh, with killing yeah, it it reminded me of like a '70s cop show. Of he was arraigned in Superior Court, Los Angeles. It's it's very like we just ran out of time and we've got to wrap this up. Yeah. I mm, I, I I would take that. I would take it the way they did it, um, over like a, a cheery, happy shot of them on like the Denver, University of Denver campus or something like that. Yeah, I mean, this way is cheesy, but at least it's not fake, like, because this, this shouldn't end happy. This is a, this is a bleak movie. Yeah, and with Hollywood movies, everything's gotta have that happy ending. And credit to them, they didn't sequel bait anything. No. I can't imagine how they would have, but I mean, that was 
so normal back then. Every horror movie was sequel baited. So the fact that they were just, no, this is, this is it. 90 minutes front to back. Well, um, we only had two of the, um, franchise icons at this point we had Michael and we had Leatherface and Leatherface um wasn't didn't even get a sequel um at the time and um it was only they were only up to the second Halloween so they really didn't know how profitable these movies could end up being if they came up with an original um, horror icon. And that's what so many were trying to do throughout the course of the 80s. And they could never match, you know, like a Freddy or a Jason. And God knows they tried. But, um, yeah, it just didn't work. Yeah, it's just refreshing, though, that they didn't even that they just presented this as clean cut just here's a story done yeah and plus i think it had kind of a um almost kind of a a tv movie feel to it as well with the way it was done but that could have been um the uh the, uh, the time you know right um so do you have any final thoughts it's it's it is an engrossing movie i think that if there's one big flaw i think that the second act drags a little bit um but it's still it susan tyrell's performance is amazing and i love the it's got such a great pro uh, pro LGBTQ message or just an environment I should say not necessarily a message but uh, it's it's a, it's a great movie that needs to be seen by more people it's, it's definitely ahead of its time for sure and it's uh, it's relevant today it, it, it contemporary audiences I think could relate to it yeah, I would say so. It's um, nothing yeah, apart from the, the haircuts and the fashion. <laughs> and um, the I mean, yeah, but I mean, those are distinctly 80s, but any movie in the 80s is going to be distinctly that. Um, nothing dates this movie, really. You don't you never feel like you're watching a movie that that feels old. It just it just looks like the genre it was made in is all. And like you said, it's tight. It's, it's message is just as relevant today as it, it could be as it was back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, unfortunately ignorance and bigotry are here to stay, you know? <sighs> yep. <sighs> yeah. But, um, I think it's an important movie to see, too, um, uh, primarily for horror fans, because, like I said, this was 
or it is perceived anyway to be the first film in the genre to have a positive gay uh, a gay character who is uh, portrayed positively and he's not seen as a pervert or you know anyone with atypical sexual proclivities he's just a guy yeah so and that's too you know that that does kind of drive me crazy when they have gay characters in movies and they always have to end up being some kind of a stereotype of some kind yeah it's i i don't think that i mean i'm only speaking again as a straight guy but i don't think from a straight perspective it lends any kind of ability it doesn't help uh lgbtq be more normalized in people's minds who are more resistant to it when gay stereotypes are pushed like right oh here's the here, here's the super flamboyant johnny weir type who's you know who's super oh. ostentatious you know sp- super ostentatious and speaks with a lisp and wears flamboyant clothing and like it's like not there are that type of people but not every gay person is that type of person there's a, they're human beings portray them as that you know johnny weir is somebody i haven't thought about in years and you had to bring him back into my subconscious sorry i have a friend who's obsessed with johnny weir and i I don't understand why I find him so abrasive um, just because he leans into the stereotypes too much. And I don't want of any kind. I don't like anybody who leans into any kind of stereotype and does so with enthusiasm. Like you're not you're not helping yourself or whatever demographic that you fit into. You're just kind of. You're giving people a reason to not like you for that reason. Yeah. And uh, one thing that I didn't really like at all about him when he first gained some notoriety uh, was when he was on Chelsea Handler's show. And then he... He wrote up this whole blog that was a bullshit story about how he was mistreated on the set and that she was nasty to him. And she was so pissed off that she addressed it right on the show and looked at the camera and said, you're full of shit and you know it. Nobody mistreated you. Um, You know, it was just it was him trying to further his celebrity and to get a little joy out of um creating drama which unfortunately is a stereotype in the gay community um so so there's that but we didn't get any of that with um the coach character. no no he's just He's a guy. He's just a guy. And it just so happens that that's his sexual orientation. And it's, uh, yeah. And so was, uh, Phil Brody, too. Yeah. Right. Right. Cable repairman. Just a guy. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't, he didn't work at the, uh, bathhouses or anything like that. 
You know, he wasn't hustling on in Times Square. They both had uh, traditional careers, jobs, and they were just normal guys who just happened to like guys. And yeah. That's it, basically. Right. Shock. Gay people can be, uh, can have normal careers. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Well, with the um, the new Blu-ray coming out, and the fact that it's on Shutter, especially, I'm hoping people will see it more now. Um, gonna get a letterboxed review up there. But um, did you give your um your letterboxed um link or whatever it is? Uh, no. I, you know, I don't even honestly, I'm, I'm going to have to look it up because I don't remember what my letterbox handle is. I thought it was um, just Jed. Uh, my name is on it is Jed. Um, yeah, it is. It's just Jed. So, um, look for the, uh, if you, if you want to follow me on letterbox, it's Jed, uh, 1D, um, cause some people put two and, uh, the, my little, my icon is Grandpa Simpson, the uh, old man yelling at Cloud shot. I don't remember that one. Um, it's just like a shot of him. It's like from a newspaper. It just says old man yells at Cloud. Um, I don't remember what episode it's from, but it's from the classic era, you know, the 90s run. Oh, yeah. yeah we were talking about, the, I was talking about that with uh, the Simpsons, um, which I which really doesn't come up very often, um, but because uh, I don't watch it anymore because it's really overstayed its welcome. But there's no denying that some of them are uh, are for sure classics. But we were talking about the um, the spoof on Cuckoo's Nest, and um, they had the Native American uh, character who breaks through the, the window with the fountain mm-hmm. and that old man, <laughs> you know, the door was open. Chief break everything. <laughs> oh God. I haven't seen that one in forever. Now and then he breaks this. through it again. Forgot my hat. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. The Simpsons used to be so fucking good. They did. We then they ruined it by making it go on for fifty-two years. Like we, it's tradition of mine to watch the tree at the best treehouse of horrors. Like the first, I don't know, ten or so of them. Yeah, in, Oct- in, in October, and we watch one tonight. We watched um, the fifth one, the one that's got the parody of The Shining, and uh-huh. uh, and uh, the one where Homer goes back in time because of the toaster, and. Yeah, you know, I've seen later ones, and they're just so lame. They have yeah. no. It, it's just like, it's like they go, "What movie's popular right now?" Mm-hmm. Oh, a- Avatar. Let's do an Avatar parody. Yeah, and uh, it's just no heart to them. They're the, the, no heart, no fun. Mm-mm. No, and the classics are um, that always made me laugh no matter how many times i seen them were the bart simpson's dracula 
and um, in the Shining and the uh, the parody of the Twilight Zone episode with the uh, Taki Tina with Krusty. Yep. <clears throat> Which I still think the remake of Child's Play ripped off. I haven't seen the remake yet, only because I don't know. It just I was never the biggest Child's Play fan. Like it was it's OK, but it's never been one of my favorites. And the remake didn't get a whole lot of love. And I went, eh, maybe it's just not worth my time. Well, yeah. Well, that's basically why the doll was evil, because when he was being programmed, um, they put on all the uh, the negative traits. So it was basically someone switched this thing to evil. <laughs> <laughs> that was why he was bad. That's a that's a yeah that does sound exactly like that that Simpsons episode. Yeah, it was a guy who they were making the dolls in like a sweat fact uh uh yeah, yeah like a sweat factory. Am I was that I'm um starting to fade a little bit, but um yeah it uh, uh and uh the the boss was was nasty to uh, one of the guys. So he gets the one doll, changes all the settings in the computer, and then uh, jumps off the roof. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I didn't like it. James liked it, but he's all about everything Chucky. I mean, you've heard our Child's Play commentaries. Yeah, I've listened to a few of them, and I, I, he's... I mean, he gave Child's Play 3 a, a hell of a lot better rating than I would. Um, well, Child's Play 3 is not his favorite, but he, um, he, um, my least favorite is Seed. And he thinks Seed is better than Part 3, which I, is, you know... Part three is not the greatest, but I, I would watch that over Seed. I never went any further than three. I, Bride had just for some reason didn't interest me, and I've never gone back and watched them. So, again, it's partly because every time I watch a Child's Play movie, I just look at the adults and go, just kick the little thing. It's not that tall. Bride is fun. And it's got Jennifer Tilly, so I really like Bride, but Seed is awful. Yeah, I've heard no. I've never heard anyone say a good thing about Seed. Like I, every review I've watched, every review I've read has just said that Seed is an absolute mess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we but, we recorded the commentary for that when I was in physical pain. I, although now that I think about it, I'm going to have to watch it because for the horror podcast, eventually I'm going to have to do child's play and I'm going to have to watch all the movies. I think you should do sleepaway camp. (laughs) Oh, oh. that's, I mean, that would be really short season. That's unless i do not necessarily because of all the campers who get killed they would have 
relations, extended relations whose lives were affected. True. Two and three do have fairly high body counts. Um, they do. And I think what makes those uh, three um, most interesting, too, is that um, the characters are a mixed bag. They're all different um, nationalities. They all, they're all they all from different areas of the country. They're from different walks of life. They're underprivileged. They're, you know, spoiled brats. And they're all very different. You don't really get that in a lot of um, slasher movies. But when it came to uh, uh, bloody murders... Angela was an equal opportunity offender. True. And that's why we love her. But, all right, we're going to put a bow on this one. So I want to thank everybody for listening. Jed, I want to thank you for coming on. This was a blast. I loved Um, it. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, definitely want to have you back sometime. Um, So... Yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed it. And until next time, this is Brandon Ford wishing you all unpleasant dreams.